This morning's reading comes from the book of Mark, chapter 3, verses 20 through 35. That's page 1066 in your pew Bible. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that he could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that health, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside they sent to him and called him. And the crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside, seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking, at a, looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is God's word for God's people. May God add his understanding to our hearing of these words in this lesson. Let's pray together. Father, thank you this morning for your word, your inspired and errant word that is our authority. God, we ask you to use it this morning to change our hearts, to look more like Jesus. God, I give you myself and submit myself to you this morning that you would, uh, God, give me the words that you would have me say and take from my mouth any words that you would not want me to say. Father, I want to honor you this morning in your word. So hide me behind your cross. It's in the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Well, I'm going to ask you this morning as we start a very spiritual question, maybe one of the deepest theological questions I've ever asked from the pulpit. Do you like Oreos? <laughs> it's profound, right? I don't, I don't know uh, how many no's we would get this morning from that question, uh, but... I love Oreos. I love, I love the regular ones, but I especially love the double stuffed, and I really can't stand the little thin ones because it's just a tease, right? You know, the little diet Oreo. <laughs> You're like, what is that? Uh, but I love the little uh, holiday ones when they're 4th of July or Halloween themed, the, the little mystery ones where you don't know what the cream filling's going to be, but I especially love the vanilla uh, Oreos, the, the vanilla wafer and then the, the cream filling and the other vanilla wafer. And if, if you can find, if the stars align and you can find a double stuffed vanilla Oreo, it's like, 
the best. But I love Oreos, and, and I promise it's connected in a way, in a very strange way, but to our text this morning, because Oreos are good because that sandwiching of the, of the meat, of the cream filling, is what makes it just so really doggone good. <laughs> and this morning in our text, <laughs> here's the connection, Mark is going to sandwich something for us. And he does this often. As we've been studying through Mark's gospel, uh, we've seen the way Mark writes. We've seen some trends in his writing where he uses the word immediately all the time. He's getting us fast-paced to the cross. Um, that's a style thing. This morning, we're going to see the first of Mark's many sandwich stories, like a good Oreo right here in the text for us. It's a story within a story. So what Mark will do, he'll start a story. You've heard the text read for us. He starts with one part of the narrative. He moves on to a second story, and then he circles back and finishes it with another slice of bread there and sandwiches this truth. And so I think he does that for a couple reasons. Uh, First, he's a writer. He's a storyteller, and as someone narrating a story, uh, he's doing this as a matter of style. He's captivating your attention. He's starting with a story. He's building tension. He's keeping your interest, and then he returns to that first story later to finish it off. But there's a second reason, and that second reason is theological. For Mark, he sees uh, a connection between the two stories somehow. He's weaving these stories together in this way because he's, he, he wants us to see the theological tie between the two stories, the link between the two narratives. And so you see examples throughout Mark's gospel. Uh, Mark chapter 5, you see Jesus raising Jairus' daughter and the woman with the issue of blood and those being a sandwich style story. Mark 11, uh, Jesus curses the fig tree and then you have him cleansing the temple. Another sandwich story. Mark 14, the plot to kill Jesus. They begin to plot, how are we going to do away with this one Jesus And then he's anointed at Bethany, and then they come back to the plot of trying to kill Jesus. And so this is something that Mark does often. And this morning, the question for us is, what is the the theological truth? What is the question that Mark's raising with this sandwiching of stories uh, between these two kind of things that are going on? And I think it's this, church family, that there are times in life, specifically as it relates to Jesus, there's a time in life where you must choose. You must decide what you're going to believe about Jesus Christ. Every one of us must decide. Uh, Last Friday, um, we took Desmond to the first football game that he'll remember. Now, he'll never remember that as an infant. We went to a few as well. But this is the first one that he'll remember. And we, we went to the Bun High School game because Desmond's really starting to enjoy football. He talks about it all the time. And, you know, they say that uh, kids take on the interests of their parents. Whatever the parents are into, the kids will be into. And so I'm really not sure what's going on with Desmond, though. The boy loves him some football. Uh, maybe it's Jessica's obsession with football. I'm not, not really sure there. Uh, but he's, he's all about some football. So we bring him to the, to the Bun game. And after about you know, two or three minutes into the first quarter, we find out that he's cheering for everything. He's cheering for the ball, he's cheering for the grass, he's cheering for the cheerleaders, he's cheering for both teams, cheering for the referees. I mean, he's just, he's excited about being at a football game. And so at some point I had to take him and take his cheeks into my hand and say, son, uh, we're for the Bun Wildcats. <laughs> you can't go cheering for the other team, especially on the Bun home side. I mean, the other team makes a touchdown and he's, he's going crazy. I said, so buddy, you, you got you to choose you got to pick a horse and ride it. you got to go with the Bun Wildcats. That's, that's the team we're rooting for. And so, of course, he doesn't understand a bit of that and continues to scream anytime anything exciting happens. happens. But uh, the point was, I, I was wanting him to understand, you, you got to choose, buddy. 
You can't just cheer for everything and every, everything that's going on in the game. You've got you to pick a, pick a team and go for it. And I think this morning, Mark's gospel is bringing out this truth that there are different opinions, different thoughts, different people that are approaching Jesus for different reasons. But we must, this morning, as we reflect on Mark's gospel, choose. I think when you're talking about a two-year-old at a football game, it's almost kind of funny. But when it's things like eternity and life and death... It's a lot harder. Uh, many of us would like to just straddle the fence or ride down the middle of the road. But this morning, friends, there's no room for that. We must choose. This most important instance of, of choosing sizes when it comes to the person, choosing size, sides when it comes to the person of Jesus. Mark 12, uh, or Matthew 12, verse 30 says this, Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. So even Jesus in Matthew's gospel, who we're not reading this morning, lays this out. Either you're with me or you're against me. Those are the options. There's no C option for us this morning. So we must decide. You must decide what we believe about Jesus. And we can't be neutral or apathetic because in being neutral or apathetic or undecided or I'll decide later, then you're making a choice to not believe. So Mark illustrates this this morning with this sandwich story. He'll break it, we'll break it down into two halves. First, we'll see two opinions that Jesus or that people have about Jesus. And then we'll see that Jesus shares two facts about people. So two opinions people have about Jesus, two facts Jesus shares about people. So first, two opinions people have about Jesus. Look at verse 20 and 21 with me again. And they went home, Capernaum. And the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. So the first opinion that we're presented with in the text that people have about Jesus is that he's out of his mind. He's a delirious man. He's a lunatic. Mark, once again, demonstrating to us that Jesus' popularity has grown to the point that uh, it's physically taking a toll on him. Last week we saw that the crowds were such that he was afraid they would crush him. And so he had a getaway boat ready in case the crowds become too uh, pushing in on him and were to crush him, he could get away quickly. Now in the text we see that the crowd is so large, they've gathered in this home that, 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 that Jesus and his disciples are not even able to eat. So physically taking a toll on him. Somehow, Jesus' family in Nazareth hears about this. They know about his popularity. They've seen how he's, his following has grown and word has traveled to Nazareth. And they've determined to come and get him. It's a 20-mile journey from Nazareth to Capernaum where Jesus is. And it would have taken, uh, by foot, roughly a day for them to get there. So they went out to seize him, the text says. In the Greek, that's the original language that this was written in, went out to seize him actually is, is a really strong word in the Greek for arrest him. That's their intention. They're going out as bounty hunters going to arrest Christ to keep him from this self-destruction that they see taking place. His family's willing to make this day-long journey to forcibly take and haul him back to Nazareth. Verse 21 shows us why they have this plan in place. Verse 21, for they were saying he's out of his mind. Or he's crazy. His own family, his, his own family that he'd grown up with, that he'd lived in a house with, that he'd shared meals with, his closest relatives wanting to drag him back to Nazareth so that he could indulge in these delusions that he has without causing anybody any harm. That was their opinion of Jesus at this point. How was it that his own family, his own relatives, could resort to such extreme and humiliating ideas about him? 
Well, first, and to their credit, they loved him. As you would your child, as you would your brother, they loved him. It would have been easier for them just to let him go and to try to turn their head and and not watch, maybe cover their eyes and ears and and not hear the rumors coming from Capernaum and and let him go to his own demise. It was going to be tough for them to carry him home and to keep him there in Nazareth under wraps. That was a sacrifice that they were going to have to make. And they risked the trouble because they were concerned about him. They loved him. It's, It's family. As you would do for any of your family, they were concerned about him and they were worried. But second... Why would they do this? Second, they were concerned that his religious fervor, that his, that his religious passion and zeal that he had was going to uh, be his demise. It was going to kill him. You think about this. Verse 20 says that the demands of the crowd were such that he was missing meals. Something that some of us, that I, need to do. I need to miss a few meals. But in that day, that was a serious deal. Food was more scarce. You lived often meal to meal. And to miss meals was a big deal. Every meal was important. Last week we saw again that the crowds were pressing in him, uh, pressing in around him such that they were uh, a physical harm to him. Besides this, what man in his right mind would leave the family business? Remember, dad's trained him up to be a carpenter. He was able to provide for his family with this trade. What man in his right mind would leave this trade where he's able to put food on the table and provide for his family and just go off and do this ministry thing that he's doing? He would gather a motley crew of disciples around him like he has. A bunch of fishermen, a tax collector that are his disciples and they're following him. He set himself up against the religious and political powers in that day. We've already seen five different confrontations that Jesus has with the religious and political leaders in that day. And that they're devising a plan to destroy him, the text says. He's claiming to be God. John chapter 7, verse 5, shows us that even his own brothers didn't understand, they didn't believe until the end of Christ's ministry on earth. So at this time, in, in, in this story, in the narrative that Mark's weaving for us, this crazy life that Jesus was living was about to kill him, and his family thought he was out of his mind. This is what they believed at that time. And so they decided they must put an end to this madness, this nonsense. Application for us today, church family. There are those in the world today that would have this position, hold this position. That Jesus was a good man, maybe. Perhaps even one of the greatest men to ever live, but he was mistaken about his identity. He was mistaken about his mission and who he was. He's to be admired for his teaching. He's to be admired for his sacrificial love. The way he helped people and loved people and fed people was very admirable, but he was out of his mind. That's a common opinion of Christ today. Christ's followers have been called out of their mind since Christ's time. The Apostle Paul, in Acts chapter 26, he's preaching before Festus. Festus says this, Paul, you're out of your mind, Acts chapter 26. Your learning is driving you out of your mind. Martin Luther, the reformer, we're right on the heels of the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. Martin Luther was called demon-possessed and a fool by those that opposed him. Why? Because he wanted to put the Bible out in the language of the people so that people could read it. He was called foolish and demon-possessed. John Bunyan, John Wesley, founded the Methodist Church, all called insane. People you may uh, know have been called insane for following Christ. You may, even yourself, have been called crazy for following Christ or may be called crazy in the years and days ahead. Think of our kids that are growing up. In the world that we live in. What happens when they're adults and they're surrendering their lives to follow after Christ? 
follow a man from Nazareth who claimed to be God and who died on a cross and who rose from the dead. And that's what we're trusting in for our eternity. You may be called crazy. But friends, let us know that if this word, if the Bible is true and if Christ is who he says he is, and if there was a man from Nazareth who died on the cross to forgive us of our sins and rose from the dead, then friends, anything but total commitment and abandonment of your lives to this one Jesus Christ is insane. Friends, we must. We have no choice. If Jesus is who he said he is, we have no choice but to surrender our lives to him. That is sane. There's a second opinion, though, that folks have of Jesus in this text. And Mark continues our story. We've started off with Jesus' family and what their intentions are. Second opinion about Jesus, that he's a demonized liar. He's a demonic liar. Mark introduces the story of Jesus' family in verses 20 and 21, but then he leaves us hanging there for a second, and he goes into this other story, switches gears a bit, and begins to show us this story of Jesus' confrontation again with the scribes, religious leaders in that day, the religious elite. He'll return to the story of Jesus' family in verses 31 through 35, but look at verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He's possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. So word's gotten to Nazareth, to Jesus' family, verses 20 and 21. Now we see that word has traveled about Jesus to Jerusalem. Teachers of the law, these scribes, make this trek from Jerusalem down to Capernaum to investigate Jesus. They're going to discover from Jerusalem, they've been sent out, what, what is this one Jesus teaching and doing and these miracles that are being claimed to have been done by him? This is a 70-mile journey. Three times what Jesus' family has traveled just to investigate this one Jesus. It appears that they go there with their minds already made up. They're already convinced. They're not doing fair investigation. They didn't go and interview Jesus and talk to his disciples and poll the crowds and find out what people are seeing and observing in Jesus' ministry. They go down and make two immediate accusations uh, toward Jesus. Look at verse 22. Number one, they accuse him of being possessed by Beelzebul. This is a vicious attack to Christ. This is a harsh claim that he was possessed by, one of the, uh, by, by the one who ruled over demons and evil spirits. Lord of the flies. And some suggest in different commentaries that this was another name for Satan in this day. So in saying this, they're saying that Jesus is not just demon possessed, which we've seen in Mark's gospel. Other people are possessed by demons. They're saying that he's actually possessed by Satan himself. Lord of the demons. Verse 22, you see the second allegation. And it's by the prince of demons, this Beelzebul, that he casts out demons. This charge reduces Jesus to being some sorcerer, someone who's able to control things through magic arts, the dark arts. He's able to do things by the power of this one Beelzebul. Think about it. Think about what's going on here. These scribes get here, and they suddenly realize, they, they're confronted with the truth that they can't deny that Jesus has performed bona fide uh, witnessed, confirmed exorcisms. Remember, these are done in front of hundreds of people. Crowds as, as, as possibly as big as 10,000 have witnessed these things that Jesus have, has been doing, healing people, casting out demons, making a, a paralytic man walk again. And so they can't deny that he's been doing things, and that, that's been uh, evidenced by the people, the crowds that are witnessing it. And so they, they can't deny it. So what they have to do is say that the source of it, instead of being God, which is what he's claiming, is actually Satan. They're calling him a liar. He's not just a, a crazy person, as his family would think, but these religious leaders are saying that, no, he's actually under the control of Satan himself. 
So how does Jesus respond? He gives them two parables. I love Jesus' wit and wisdom and the way we've seen him, even in Mark's gospel, answering these religious leaders. Often when he he answers and gives a reply, it stops them in their tracks. It does here as well, verse 23. And he called them to him, and he said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? Now, notice first that Jesus calls them to himself. Apparently, what's going on here is that these religious leaders show up, and they're they're not talking to Jesus face to face. They're behind his back, gossiping, talking with, with others about Jesus, trying to find out what's going on, but, but not really talking to Jesus, just gossiping about him behind his, behind his back. And so there's a, a deep theological truth for us here. Jesus hates gossip. So the next time you're tempted to do that, think of Jesus' statement here to these religious leaders. It says that he called them to him. <laughs> talk to me face to face. Let's talk about this thing. And when he addresses them, he speaks to them in parables. Again, uh, if you've not grown up in church, parables are just stories that have a, a truth, a theological truth, a, uh, a spiritual truth that's, that's told so that the truth is felt. And that happens in verse 24 through 26. You see the first one. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided... He cannot stand, but is coming to an end. That's a very popular verse. We see it even on license plates. You know what I'm talking about around here, especially Duke fans and NC fans living in the same house. You'll see the bumper sticker, right? A house divided. We talk about that almost as if it's common language. Jesus is pointing out something here that's, that's incredibly, uh, it's very much common sense. The parable and its explanation are given. Jesus in uh, these, these few verses he demonstrates to them just the, the ignorance that they have. The charge that the scribes have made doesn't make logical sense. It doesn't add up. It doesn't hold water. Think of a military unit that goes to battle. And instead of firing at the enemy, they're firing at their own people. Instead of firing at the, at the enemy, they're, they're in the foxhole uh, hurting one another. Or our football team, since we started out with football. You're in the Super Bowl. And it's a game-winning touchdown that's on the line. The running back is running towards the goal line. There's no one around him except for his teammate who's there to make blocks. And right before he gets to the goal line, the guy, his own teammate, turns and tackles him. That doesn't make sense. Think of a group of robbers that go to rob a bank. And as soon as they get inside the bank, instead of going to the teller and asking for money, he turns and robs his friend that he just came into the bank with to rob the bank. It just doesn't make sense. That's what Jesus is saying here. He's telling them, what you're saying about me just doesn't add up. Then you have verse 27. Gives them the second parable. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. Since this is the illustration that Jesus uses, let's go with this. Picture a strong man. A guy that does CrossFit like seven times a day. He's like ripped from the top of his head to his pinky toe. I mean, muscles on top of muscles. I mean, just kind of picture me. I'll, I'll give you an example. Strong man. A strong man. I mean, he's, he is bowed up like Arnold Schwarzenegger back before he was the governor. You know, like strong man. And not only strong man, he has like an automatic rifle in hand and he's happy to use it, protecting his home like one of those kind of strong men. You don't just walk into that guy's house and begin to take his stuff. That doesn't make sense. (laughs) You don't walk into his house and begin to plunder his stuff while he stands and watches you as you do it. No, you better be able to overpower him somehow. 
tie him up, lock him in a closet, and then you rob him. <laughs> Don't you love that Jesus here? I love Jesus's just his 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 ability to teach and the wit that he uses. I mean, Jesus here is giving you three steps to robbing your neighbor in his teaching here. Uh, you tie him up, and then you go and take his stuff. <laughs> in the parable here, the point's not rob your neighbor. Again, parables are for teaching. Parables are to show us a spiritual truth. And in this parable, Jesus is making some comparisons for us. Jesus is showing us that in this story, Satan is the strong man. And friends, make no mistake, Jesus' truth that, that Satan is a strong man is true for us today. He is powerful. He's not just some fictional being. There are demonic powers. There are satanic powers. And, and, and he is powerful. The Bible says he's like a lion and he roars all over this earth seeking those he may devour. The house here, the strong man's house, is the kingdom that he dominates, which we know for this time is the earth. That for this time he's, he's loosed on this earth and he's able to tempt and he's able to cause people to be uh, held up in addictions and different sins. And his goods in this parable are the precious victims that he holds captive. The goods that Satan would have on his earth, his house, are those that are bound by addictions and sins and caught up in treacherous problems. And there's only one stronger than Satan, though. There's only one stronger that can set these victims free. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying. There's only one who can do that. There's only one who can bind Satan and free his captives that can steal his goods, his people that he's got under his control, and that's Jesus. And he's saying, he's saying to these Pharisees, these religious leaders, these scribes, he's entered into Satan's house. He's bound him. He's loosed these captives. Jesus appealed here to logic. He's appealing to, 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 this, to this parable to, to confront these, uh, these scribes. And in doing so, he gives us a great reason to rejoice this morning, friends. Whatever your struggles are, whatever it is that you're walking through, maybe even this week, whether it's family issues or relationship issues, whether it is addictions, Jesus is saying to us this morning, he is stronger. That's what we just sang, the song that we just sang, confess that truth, that he is stronger, he is stronger, and sin is broken, and he saved us. Friends, that's the glorious news of the gospel is that Satan doesn't have to be in control. Your addictions don't have to be in control. Jesus is not controlled or possessed by Satan or Beelzebul. But no, Satan is in fact controlled and possessed and moved by Jesus. Jesus owns Satan. Satan is indeed strong, but Jesus is stronger. So there are two opinions that we see even in the text about Jesus. Delirious man, demonized liar. He's a lunatic. Or he's a liar. There's a third option, though. And though it's not spelled out specifically in this section of Mark's gospel, it's exactly what Mark's been arguing all the way through his gospel. That's the reason Mark's writing, and it's this, and it's the opinion that Jesus is exactly who Mark said he is, and that Jesus is exactly who Jesus has said he is, that he is indeed divine Savior, that he is God in the flesh, that he's fully man, but he's fully God. He's sent from the Father to save his people from their sins. Friends, weigh this truth this morning. He can't be a a delirious lunatic. Sure, there are high-functioning sociopaths, there are high-functioning psychopaths in history, but none that have so drastically changed the course of history. 
Friends, none that have had this kind of a following while he was alive. Thousands of people that saw the miracles that he did. Thousands of people that witnessed the healings and the, the, the exorcisms that he performed. And called him Messiah, Savior. Among common people. None that sacrificially gave their life for mankind. Sure, they're high-functioning psychopaths. But none that would uh, go and, and take on a cross for people. None that were raised from the dead and were seen by hundreds. That's the witness of Scripture, that he not only raised from the dead, but after his resurrection was seen by uh, hundreds of people. Yeah, there are high-functioning psychopaths, friends, but, but none that have called and established relationships with man from every nation, tribe, and tongue 2,000 years after his resurrection. Jesus is certainly no delirious lunatic. He's certainly not a demonized liar. I mean, quite frankly, friends, think about how silly this is. If Jesus had made up this lie, if Jesus had said to a group of fishermen that were following him, hey, guys, I've got this plan. We're going to come up with this conspiracy. I'm going to be God. And we're going to convince people that I'm God. And I've come to take on the sins of the world. And I know it's a lie, but just go with it. Just go with it. We'll see how many people we convince of this, of this lie. Don't you think... If that would have been what happened, don't you think this game would have stopped the second Jesus was uh, strapped across his back with the cat of nine tails? That as his flesh was literally ripped from his back, he would have said, hey, hey, wait, 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 game's over. (laughs) That was all a made-up story. I'm done. (laughs) But no, he took 39 lashes with that whip. Don't you think that lie would have certainly been confessed before he took nails into his feet and his hands? (laughs) Hey, guys, I'm just kidding about that. That was all just something we came up with, some conspiracy we made up. Let's stop with all this punishment and abuse and agony. The game would have stopped at his crucifixion. Yet the text tells us, the Bible tells us, and the witnesses of history tell us that he was led like a lamb to the slaughter and he opened not his mouth. Jesus was certainly no demonized liar. So we're left with a third option, that he's the divine savior. He is who he said he was. He was truly God in the flesh and that he came to save people from their sins. C.S. Lewis, the author of uh, the, the Chronicles of Narnia, famously said it in this way. I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept him, uh, his claim to be God. This is the one thing that we can't say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic and on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or he would be worse, the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill kill him as though he were a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great moral teacher. He has not left that open to us. He didn't intend to. So friends, what will you choose today? Is Jesus a lunatic or a liar or is he Lord? I think we're confronted with that question today, but... It's not where the text ends. Again, I told you we're, he's sandwiching the story of, of his family's confrontation of him in between this narrative of, of the scribes' confrontation of him. And so in that, we have uh, two opinions that people have about Jesus. But now Jesus shares two facts about people. Remember, uh, verse 28 through 30. 
You've heard it read. It says this. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit can never have forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying that he has an unclean spirit. First fact Jesus shares about people is that some will be rejected by God because of their disbelief. Some will be rejected by God because of their disbelief. We have this so-called unpardonable sin. You you hear it all over the place. There are a few scriptures in the Bible that are more uh, misunderstood and more misapplied than this one. Even folks that don't even go to church, that don't want anything to do with the church, we talk about the unpardonable sin. It's almost common language in the world we live in. So the question is, what is the unforgivable sin? What does Jesus say is the unforgivable sin? I think that's what's most important. That's where it comes from. So let's, let's first say what it's not. I think there's some misconceptions about what it is. What is it not? Well, it's not cursing the Holy Spirit. You may hear that in our day. It, you, you may hear it's taking the Lord's name in vain. Though that is a, a vile sin, that's not what's being talked about here. It's not adultery or sexual perversion. Though those are heinous sins. It's not murder or even multiple murders or even genocide. As awful as those sins are, that's not what he's talking about here. So what is the unpardonable sin? It's this. It's the continual and ongoing rejection of the witness of the Holy Spirit to the divinity and saviorhood of Jesus Christ. I'll repeat that because I know it's a mouthful. It's the continual and ongoing rejection of the witness of the Holy Spirit to the divinity and saviorhood of Jesus Christ. Kent Hughes says it in this way. It's the perversion of the heart that chooses to call light darkness and darkness light. It's the continuing rejection of the witness of the Holy Spirit whether that witness be a quiet witness of the conscience, the rational witness of the Bible, or even miracles and wonders. It's the continuing, ongoing rejection of who Jesus Christ is as testified by the Holy Spirit. These scribes were on the brink of committing that treacherous sin. That's what Jesus is warning them about. They're saying that the witness of the Holy Spirit... That Jesus is God and that he's actually done these miracles of exorcism and healings and his teaching should be accredited to Satan and not to God. That's what they're saying. So the grammar in verse 22 in the Greek indicates that they're saying this over and over and over. They're continually saying this. This isn't just a one-time claim. This is what they convinced themselves and we're trying to convince others of. And it's an attitude that can, if becomes permanent, is the unpardonable sin. So application today. Have there been people that committed this sin? Yes. Are there people today that are still committing this sin? Yes. I think you can illustrate it even with a fictional story. So this is not a true story. This is just made up for the sake of illustration. But a pastor is called to a hospital, 3 a.m., and a friend that he's known for a long time is dying. He's on the brink of death, and this pastor goes concerned and wants to talk to this man about his soul and says to him, um, how is everything between you and the Lord? And the man replies, well, I've always believed in God. I think everything is okay. And the pastor says, well, what do you believe about Jesus? The man says, well, I've, I've known God all my life. I've tried to observe godly standards. I've tried to be honest. I've tried to, tried to work hard and be an honest businessman. And the pastor says, friend, I wouldn't be here today if I were not your friend. Now answer me straight. How is your relationship with Jesus? And the man says, I don't believe in Jesus. If I were to believe in Jesus, it would upset everything in my philosophy for life, my worldview. And I would have to rethink everything about me in my life. The pastor begs, but friend, you have time. Please rethink it. To which the man says, no, I will die without Jesus. 
The pastor says, why, friend, why did Jesus die? And the man says, oh, I understand. He died for sins. That's what you claim. That's what your Bible claims. The pastor says, yes, but your sins. He died for your sins. And the man says, perhaps, but it's too late in my life to rethink the place of Jesus. And the man dies. Friends, this knowledgeable man, this man that had heard the gospel and knew the claims of the Bible, resolutely rejected Jesus Christ. Friends, it's not the innocent or it's not the ignorant blasphemer on the street that's in danger of committing this unforgivable sin. It's the man in the church. It's the man or woman that's grown up in church. They've heard the Bible's claims. They've heard the word of God preached. They've seen the miracle of God and salvation. They've seen men and women that were, that were addicted to drugs come and give their life to Christ and be totally transformed by Christ. And they've witnessed that. And yet still, even though they've seen and heard all these things, they reject it in their heart. That's who's at risk of committing this sin. And friends, real quick, we're not going to break down a whole sermon on the unpardonable sin, but note this. I think people worry about the unpardonable sin. And, and you need to hear this. If that's you, if you're afraid that you've committed this sin then we can say with confidence that you're being troubled over it. The fact that you're worrying about it is evidence that you've not committed it, right? So even with these religious leaders, these scribes, that were, that were incredibly like blasphemous in their claim that Jesus was possessed by Beelzebul, even there, Jesus did not say they had committed it. He was just warning them against committing it, right? And so for those of us that are alive that, that may be worried, gosh, did I ever do that? Friends, the fact that you're worried about it, the fact that the Holy Spirit has opportunity to work on your heart demonstrates that you haven't. So fact number one from Jesus that we see is that some people will be rejected by God because of disbelief in their heart. The second fact that we see about people from Jesus is that some will be accepted by God because of their obedience. Look at verse 31 and 32. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside sent to him, and called him. And a crowd was waiting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. So Jesus' family finally arrives from Nazareth. They've made the long journey. Remember, they're concerned that he's out of his mind. He's lost his mind. He's a lunatic. He's, he's acting crazy. And they've come to take control of him and take him back to Nazareth. So they send this message into Jesus. Hey, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. And you would expect Jesus to go out and greet them, right? That's probably what they were expecting, too. Yet, in verse 33 through 35, read with me. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. So Jesus asked this cryptic question. Who are my mother and brothers? And he points to those that are sitting out in front of them at his feet listening to his teaching. Gospel of Matthew and his version of this story in the Gospel of Matthew, he says that he specifically calls out his disciples here that have been following him, that have been doing ministry with him. What's the truth that we see here in this text? Well, it's this, friends. When you come to Christ, when you come to Christ and surrender your life to him, you become part of a family. And it's not just a church family, though that's included. You become part of God's family. Part of the church that exists from, uh, from, from, from the creation of man to the, to the second coming of Christ. The church, there's those that are following after Christ. John 1.12 says this, But to all who receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. This language is used throughout the New Testament. That you're becoming part of a family when you give your life to Christ. And he's not disrespecting his family here. 
He's not dismissing them. Uh, he's not dismissing the, the idea of a physical, biological family and the importance of the family unit. We know Christ is for the family. We know Christ is for marriage and for children. These things are clear to us in the scriptures. But he is saying that there's a family bond among Christians that's even stronger than physical ties. Her blood is thicker than water. Well, Christ's blood is thicker than blood. And that's what he's saying here. Those who do God's will are Jesus' true family, and his spiritual family was even more important than his physical family. Those following him, giving their lives to him, were more important. And Jesus is not harsh with his family. You'll note that. He's not harsh with his family like he was with the teachers of the law. They're not blaspheming the Holy Spirit, but they are indicating that they're showing a lack of faith here. The fact that they would come to get him, to bring him back to Nazareth, is indicating that they don't understand who Jesus is. They've missed it. They're demonstrating that they don't understand his mission, and they're actually interfering with his mission. So as much as he loved his family, and you don't seem being harsh or rebuking them, his mission came first. His mission to save mankind from their sins, to die up on the cross, is the only way that they can have relationship with God restored. So how does one become part of this family? That's the question I would be left with after hearing this text. I want to be a part of that family. (laughs) If that's the most important thing in the world, then I want to be a part of that family. So how do I become a part of that family? Jesus says this in the text, whoever does God's will is my family. So friends, don't misunderstand Jesus here. Jesus is not saying that to become a Christian, you must do the right stuff. That we've got a list of rules to get in the club and you must do these rules and those are the good things and there's a list of bad things and you don't do those things. And if you get those two checklists right, you can be in the family. That's not what Jesus is saying. The Bible makes it clear that you're not saved by doing or not doing uh, stuff, wrong stuff or right stuff. The Bible makes it clear that we're saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone. It's this, friends, that Jesus Christ is God. He came and lived a perfect life on this earth. Because we had messed up. We had sinned. We had rebelled against God. He died in our place as God's son, as the perfect sacrifice. He died in our place. He took our sins upon himself on the cross. But he didn't stay dead, friends. He rose from the dead, conquering the grave, conquering hell, conquering death for us that would put our trust in him. So what does it look like to put your trust in him? It means that you would bank everything on him. Not on doing good, not on this system of merits and demerits, like some kind of karma or something, but that you say to him, I am a sinner and I need Jesus Christ to forgive me of my sins so that I can have a relationship with God. That's what it looks like. That's what it is to to come to him by faith. And so faith is, is evidence here. Obedience, again, what Jesus says here about obeying the Father, obedience does not originate a relationship with God, but obedience is a sign of a relationship with God. When you've come to faith in Jesus Christ and you've surrendered your life to him, you've said to him, Jesus, I'm no longer Lord of my life. I'm no longer the boss. You are the boss. You are in charge of my life. And so whatever you want from my life is what I want from my life. And when you do that, your life begins to look like obedience to God the Father. And that's what he's saying here. We're saved by faith, believing in Jesus Christ. But Jesus is saying when you've done that, when you've believed in Jesus Christ and he's become your Lord, you'll obey God. So in conclusion, friends, as we wrap up, let me ask you a few questions. Where are you? What will you do with Jesus today? Have you made that choice? Have you decided to follow after Jesus? If you want to know, 
Look at your life. That's what he's saying. It'll be evidenced by certain characteristics. Are you following the, God, the Father? Are you following God's will and plan? And make no mistake, friends, not deciding is deciding. Either you choose to follow Christ or you're saying no to Christ. What will you choose today, friends? I pray that we're following him. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Father, we worship you this morning because you do not leave us in our sin. That you sent Jesus, the perfect and sinless Lamb of God, to die in our place. And that's unthinkable, extravagant grace. So, Father, we praise you. God, I pray this morning that as we hear the text and we see these two different opinions of Christ, as we hear the text and we hear Jesus' warning about what it means to, to be a part of this family, the family of God, that, God, we would wrestle with this truth. Search in our own hearts for where we are. God, help us to surrender to you today. Help us to, by your word and by your spirit, see the reality of who Christ is and yield our lives. Father, would you move in this time as we respond, as we sing, as we worship you. Would the name of Jesus be lifted up and our hearts be drawn to him. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.